firm believer in God himself, but that's as far as I can go. I'm not any denomination. I'm not Catholic or Presbyterian or Baptist or Methodist or Jewish or Muslim. I'm none of those things. And I'm sure that's just fine with God. Ray Charles. Welcome to the Revisionist History Podcast, where we set the historical record straight, no matter who it might offend. I'm Paul, and I think it's possible that today's episode will offend a lot of people, because it's going to tread on some very sacred cows. Our very first episode looked at the question of whether America really was founded as a Christian nation. Be sure to check that one out if you haven't yet. Today's episode takes that question a step farther by looking at the real history behind the founding of those Christian denominations themselves. I say denominations rather than Christianity itself because there is little debate regardless of your spiritual views or lack thereof about the start of the Christian religion. The Bible demonstrates that Christianity began when the apostles of Jesus began to spread his message following his life, execution, and resurrection in Israel roughly 2,000 years ago. That Jesus lived and was ultimately executed by crucifixion is now accepted by most historians. The question of the resurrection is a matter of faith more than simply history. And as this is a podcast that deals with religion only from a historical standpoint, we won't be getting into any of that here. Regardless of your view of the resurrection, the fact is that Christianity became, in a fairly short time, a religion that spread throughout the Roman Empire and later across the entire globe. But as with all events and organizations where people are involved, how it developed from its beginnings and how we remember it now is often the subject of much historical revisionism. Every Christian denomination in existence today believes, and uses both the Bible and history as their basis, that their particular expression of Christianity is, simply put, ordained by God himself. Now the very fact that there are literally hundreds of denominations, and countless subgroups within those denominations, would cause one to argue that God must be pretty chaotic if he would, quote, ordain so many very different groups, many of them diametrically opposed to each other. It just doesn't make sense logically. And if God is God, he'd surely be logical. And when we come back, we'll look at several of the major denominations and how they actually, historically, came into existence. I guarantee it will surprise some folks. Before we get into the historical facts surrounding the founding of some of these Christian denominations, I need to be crystal clear about one thing. It's setting the record straight on the history part. I'm in no way disparaging 
the beliefs of any of these groups or the piety and intention of their adherents. To use a different example, pointing out the false lost cause narrative that sprung up in the American South after the Civil War and the distorted history of the Confederacy it portrayed does not mean that people in the South today are all racists. It does, however, mean that many of them need to understand the truth of their history better. In our current discussion, correcting history does not mean disparaging religious belief. With that disclaimer out of the way, let's begin at the beginning. As Christianity fanned out from its founding in Israel in the first century, it benefited from some key advantages provided by the Roman Empire. First, a network of roads and shipping lanes that enabled people, goods, and especially ideas to travel the length and breadth of the empire with comparative ease and speed. Second, an empire at peace for nearly a century. And third, a tolerance of divergent religious viewpoints that was only suppressed when it caused significant upheaval. The periods of persecution occurred over the first century as it also did for the empire's Jews, most notably under Nero. But the Christian sect was able to grow steadily over time. The real turning point for Christianity as a global movement came in the year 312, when Constantine credited Christ with his victory at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. His subsequent conversion made Christianity the de facto religion of the empire, and most Romans, both important officials and common citizens, followed suit. Christianity, like numerous religions before it, became dominant out of political and economic rather than spiritual motivation. This link with the empire and the emperor himself led in turn to the Bishop of Rome, who until then had been simply one among five equal leaders also at Constantinople, Alexandria, Jerusalem, and Antioch as well, the first among equals, and later the Pontifex Maximus, or Pope as we know him today. The Catholic Church claims that the Pope's authority is based on the fact that St. Peter was the first Bishop of Rome, a claim that has little historical evidence. In reality, his dominance is based as much on a political power play as has ever happened in any government. All of the five patriarchates, except for Rome and Constantinople, fell to the Muslims in the 7th and 8th centuries, and tensions between the Western and Eastern Church increased. There were, to be sure, some important theological disputes as well, but in the end, the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches split in 1054 over the issue of the Pope's authority over the entire church. Keep that in mind as we go forward. It'll come up again. Many think that things were peaceful on the denominational front for the next 500 years, but it was a false peace. The genie was out of the bottle, so to speak and the fact that Christianity was no longer a single worldwide expression of faith, but an actual governing empire split into two camps, made further divisions inevitable 
much like the way the successful breaking away of one colony eventually results in the end of an empire. See Britain, France, Spain, etc. in the 18th through 20th centuries. Maybe a better analogy than the genie being out of the bottle would be to say that Pandora's box was opened because of the myriad of denominations that followed. When we come back, we'll get into some of those. inevitable mass division that opening this Pandora's box caused finally occurred in 1517 with Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. But in spite of what Protestants believe and have been told for the last 500 years, it was not God cleansing a corrupt church that made the break successful. There had been other attempts at reform some more successful than others, for centuries. Yet all had ultimately failed to cause a break in the Western Church for one key reason. The kings and princes of Europe saw no benefit in it. Luther was successful in his break from Rome, not because he was doing the will of God. God wills it is almost always a phrase that precedes disaster. He succeeded because Frederick, Elector of Saxony, in addition to being a pious man, was also very practical. At the time, the Pope held all of Europe with an iron fist in a velvet glove. He could literally topple kingdoms simply through the threat of excommunication and its resultant penalty, hell. The church owned all the best land and levied high taxes. And in Luther's movement, Frederick and other German princes saw a way to wrest this control from the Pope for themselves. The wars that followed were not about the spread of faith, or of Lutheranism in particular, but of the acquisition of land and power. And if you doubt that for one minute, simply consider Henry VIII and what is now the Church of England. Henry was a Catholic, as were all European kings just prior to the Reformation, and he hated Luther. In fact, he wrote a polemic against him with the help of Thomas More that earned him the title Defender of the Faith from the Pope, a title which English monarchs retain to this day. There was really no reason to think that England would not resist the Reformation like Spain, Portugal, Italy, and France, and remain Catholic which would have ultimately made the U.S. a Catholic colony like the Spanish colonies to the South. But then Catherine of Aragon couldn't produce a male heir. Henry wanted to annul his marriage, or at the very least, get approval for a divorce from Rome so that he could marry Anne Boleyn, have a son, and ensure the survival of his dynasty. Unfortunately for Henry, Catherine's nephew, Charles V, was the Holy Roman Emperor solidly Catholic, and much scarier to the Pope than Henry was. So no divorce. Well, then Henry did what you do if you're both religious and in charge of your country. He started his own denomination, 
with himself as the head and had his new bishops grant his divorce. He then went on his merry way, building his dynasty. But unlike Luther, Henry liked the Catholic ways, so he kept almost all of them, except for the Pope, to the point that conservative Anglican services today look more like traditional Catholic masses than you find in most Catholic churches. So if you're Episcopal or Anglican today, it's not because God willed it, it's because Pope Clement VII said no to a hard-headed king. From there, the denominational merry-go-round started spinning out of control. And while so far the revisionist examples have occurred in Europe, denominations in America got into the act pretty quickly. The most obvious example lies with the nation's largest Protestant denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention. The United States has always had something of a north-south division dating back to the Revolutionary War when the southern colonies were much less enthusiastic about independence than the northern ones, in no small part because their agriculture-based economy was heavily dependent on British markets for their cotton. This split was just as pronounced in the area of religion, and in 1845, the Baptists of the southern states met in Augusta, Georgia, and voted to break away from the Northern Baptists over an issue that was by no means spiritual. They were incensed that the National Baptist Association opposed missionaries taking slaves with them overseas like any other property, and the Southern Baptist Convention was born. Let me say this again for any of my Southern Baptist friends who still believe the denomination was founded because Baptists in the North were too liberal or held a low view of the Bible. The SBC came into being because its members wanted to keep owning slaves. As with many such breaks, from Luther forward, they tried to use the Bible to justify this, claiming that Noah's curse on his son Ham placed all people of color under the yoke of the white man. Except that the Bible doesn't say this, and Noah wasn't a white man. But hey, God wills it, right? It took the Civil War 16 years later to end slavery in America once and for all. Yet, it took a little longer for the Southern Baptist Convention to admit the historical truth that their very existence as a denomination was due to their support of slavery. They finally apologized for this at their annual convention in 1995, a mere 150 years after the fact. The splits within denominations have only accelerated in recent years in America, again using a veneer of theology as the reason. But history will show that this is false, as many recognize even as the splits occur. The division today among Presbyterians, Episcopals, Methodists, Baptists, and even the once monolithic Catholics is purely political in nature, liberal versus conservative, left versus right. It's kind of ironic that the one person who saw these divisions coming from the start was Jesus himself. In John's Gospel, the night before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed that his followers would, quote, all be one. Clearly he knew that given time and personal agendas, they wouldn't be. 
Yet this section of scripture is essentially ignored by every denomination in the world, just like they ignore the historical facts that led to their denomination's very existence. I don't have a solution to the splintering of Christianity over the centuries. Far wiser people than me have tried and failed. But maybe the place to start is to recognize and admit how each break really started, historically and factually, rather than trying to rationalize it with cherry-picked Bible verses. As with everything else, you can't know how you got where you are or how to move forward if you don't know how you started in the first place. Knowing your history, even as a spiritual believer, is the first step in doing that. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you found it both informative and entertaining. If you'd like to help us keep episodes like this coming, please consider clicking on the support this podcast link in the show notes. Thanks a lot.